are going to be in John chapter 19 today, and I'm thrilled that I get to preach this passage, so um, let's jump right in. This is John chapter 19. We're going to pick up at verse 28. Here's what it says. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Picking up at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. And Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is there. You are the God who speaks, who reveals yourself to us, who comes to, to be with us. And would you grant us the grace this day to be aware of your presence. You are here. You are with us. You indwell your people. And just as on that day 2,000 years ago where you came into the city to be with your people, to minister to them, here you are today. You come to be with us, to minister to us, to show us your great grace. And would you show us your grace today? Would you empower me by your spirit to proclaim the good news, to point to the beauty, the truth, and the goodness of who you are? Help me to help my brothers and sisters, Lord. We love you. We need you. It's in the name of Jesus, our King, that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is what we call Palm Sunday. It's the Sunday before Easter Sunday. And Jesus now enters into the capital of Jerusalem, riding a donkey, a symbol of royal power. And this happens shortly after Jesus has brought Lazarus out of the grave. There's this social buzz, there's this growing hope about this rabbi, this miracle worker of Nazareth. And it rises to a fever pitch. Lazarus, can you believe it? Lazarus, he's, he's back. Jesus brought him out of the grave. 
Lazarus, stone cold dead. And look, Lazarus, he saw him at TJ's. There he was. He's back. So hopes become whispers. And whispers become conversations. And conversations become shouts and proclamations. The crowd is ready to coronate their king. And so as he rides in on this donkey, the symbol of power, robes, cloaks are thrown down on the road into Jerusalem. And this is because they know their Bible. This is because they know that there was a conquering king who came centuries before named Jehu. And when he became king, they threw their robes down on the road to say, you are greater than us. You are our conqueror and victor. Go and claim what is yours. And he did. And he used the sword. And he conquered. And so the robes hit the floor. The long-awaited king, the promised hero descendant of King David, has come to make things right. And Jesus puts on what you might call a divinely sanctioned moment of street theater, of street drama. He's going public with his kingly claims. He's sitting on a colt for a reason, because he knows Zechariah 9, and he knows it means that the king has come, and he's showing forth the fact publicly that the king has come. And so the people take out the branches, the palm trees, the palm fronds, and they went to meet him, and they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And this chorus was their way of saying the king of David's line, the one who has long been promised to liberate us from all that oppresses us, he's here. He's here. And the palm branches, the palm branches, they're a symbol of victory. Yes. But there's something that we often miss about these branches. Those palm branches... Prepare the observant reader for what is about to happen. See, the foliage that paves the stone roads that human hands made on into the city of Jerusalem, well, that foliage was a road back into the garden. The way to Eden paved with palm fronds. This was Eden's road, and Jesus is the king He's the king who has come to reverse the curse of the ancient garden. Those palm branches are a way of saying that in this passion week of Jesus, what is ahead, we are about to see the garden in reverse. And we have been witnessing John, our author, in his brilliance. We have been witnessing him taking us on a tour, a, a, a journey of seeing the garden in reverse from chapters 18 to 20. And we're at the climax of it all today. Jesus' death and burial. And last week we looked at his death. Today we look at his death again and his burial. And next week, the splendor of Easter. The resurrection of King Jesus. Now today what we're going to see is that Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He comes in over this road of palm fronds to Reverse the curse. In other words, Jesus came to die. 
Jesus came to die. The king's triumphal entry leads to the king's burial. The palm fronds that paved the way lead to his garden burial plot. And Jesus knew full well what was going to happen. Jesus knew what he was walking into, and with incredible courage, with incredible strength of heart, he entered into Jerusalem to die. So before we go ahead today into our text, let's, let's go back just to make sure we see how the pieces fit. Let's go back to see how it all comes together. We need a 40,000 foot view. We need to zoom out because what happens so often is we get this close to a text and we just see him in these microbursts. We can't see the large picture that John is painting. And the picture he's painting is, is brilliant. And I, and I pray that you not only see that, but that you rejoice in it, that you delight in it today. Because John has been showing how, as Jesus' story moves forward from chapter 18 and 19 and 20, it is a reversal of the garden story. It is Genesis 4, 3, 2, done backwards. It's incredible. So let's watch now as Eden is rewound. But let's do it by giving a, a, a brief overview of John 18 through 20. And so here's how it, how it goes. In John 18, we have a brother's betrayal. Judas, a friend, a, a brother of, of Jesus, betrays Jesus. He sells him out because this Jesus isn't doing things the way he wants this Jesus to do. And he sells him out for some money. And then there they are in the garden, right? The Garden of Gethsemane. And here comes the arrest of Jesus by the temple guards who, who barge into that garden with, with swords and torches. And then they take this bound Jesus to be judged. They take him in front of the high priest. They take him in front of a Roman official named Pilate. And so it is that God is being judged by man. And though this one is innocent, he is punished as though he were guilty. And so they, they mock this supposed king. They put a crown of thorns on him. They put him up on a cross. And then you have on the cross this moment that I will call uh, gender reconciliation when, when Jesus looks at his mom and he looks at John and says, take care of one another. Be for one another. Be a community. Bless one another. And then we have this scene where they're gambling for Jesus' clothes, which means he's on the cross. He's naked, and he's carrying shame. He's burying the shame that sin and guilt brings. He's burying our shame. Now I'm going to skip the next vignette because we'll get to that in our passage today. But then what we saw last week that, that Dane so brilliant, brilliantly brought forth is, is that life pours from the man's side. Right? To make sure Jesus is dead, they take a Roman spear and shove it up into his, his body cavity and out comes, remember? Blood and water. Out comes life from the man's side. Skip the next vignette because we will also get to that. And then we come to the end of 19. It's dark Saturday. Jesus is, is in the grave. The garden is silent. People are off elsewhere doing other things. 
and they're awaiting a gardener. And as we know in John 20, when Mary sees the resurrected Jesus, she confuses him with the gardener, which is the best thing ever because there Jesus is the true gardener who is coming to regarden the world. This is the flow of John 18, 19, and 20. But this is Eden in rewind. So let's go from Genesis 4 back to Genesis 2. So Genesis 4, Genesis 2. A brother's betrayal. Cain kills Abel. And why does he do it? It's over worship. It's over jealousy. Go back again to the garden, to the edge of the garden, to the gate of the garden. Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden. And they are booted out. And then who is placed there as a sentry at the garden's edge? But angels, cherubim, with flaming swords, swords of fire. Step back. Before that, God comes to declare a judgment over man. God comes now to judge man because of their sin. Part of that judgment is thorns will rise up out of the ground. And not only that, there is a gender rupture. Adam throws Eve under the bus saying, God, it's, it's her fault and ultimately it's your fault because you gave me her. And then part of the, the ramifications of, of the judgment is that there is this, this contending, this disconnect between the man and the woman. And this ultimately comes from the fact that they sin. So again, step back. They're found in the garden naked and ashamed, where before they were naked and unashamed. Skip the next vignette. Step even further back in our rewind. God puts Adam to sleep and does some divine surgery on his side and out from his side, his rib, or in Hebrew, selah. This, it means the side of the person. Out of the side of Adam comes Eve, life, the mother of all that is living. Skip the next vignette and then go back. God has created everything. Day six, there's animals and there's plants. There's no one to tend the garden. The creation is awaiting a gardener. Man, scripture. The way God has written history. So, let's do this. Let's go back to the moment now when Jesus dies on the cross. Let's fill in these gaps. Let's fill in these blanks and show the brilliance of what John is doing. Show the brilliance of what the Lord has done in all of history. So, John Chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Well, at this point, Jesus has been on the cross now for a few hours, and we are on the verge here of his death, and we get this bit with the wine. He drinks sour wine. He drinks some vinegar Merlot, 
what's this about? It's a little confusing when you start to compare the Gospels because it seems like in other Gospel accounts, he refuses it. So is this one of those mistakes? What's going on? Does he refuse it or does he consume it? Does he refuse it or does he consume it? Yes, he does both. It's amazing. It's amazing. Here's what happens. The other gospel accounts fill in the gaps. They all work together. So when Jesus first goes up to Golgotha, when he first goes up to Skull Hill, he's offered what's called gall wine. Gall wine. Wine with gall in it. And what is that? Well, it was a wine that was mixed with spices that was meant to numb you a bit. It was an anesthetic, a narcotic. It was, it was a sedative that would ease some pain. And what would often happen was Caring, compassionate people there would sometimes offer that to the criminals who would die to ease their pain, and they would die quicker because they would be more numb, they couldn't hold themselves up to gain the breath they need, and they would self-suffocate quicker. So it was a form of mercy. Jesus refused it. He refused the numbing agent because he would experience this crucifixion to the full. No easy way out for Jesus. He would face the full furnace blast of the wages of sin. He would not take any shortcut. He would go all the way through. But towards the end of his time on the cross, he cries out. And it sounds a bit like to some of the people who are at the foot of the cross, it sounds a little bit like he's calling out for Elijah to come and and save him, which is, might, might sound weird to us. But the reason why is because he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's got this dry throat, so he's crying this out, and they hear the Eli, and they're like, is he calling out for Elijah? I don't know. And then what they do is they have this, this jar of sour wine that the soldiers would have had to drink from and they put a sponge or a rag on the end of it and they let him drink from that to to wet his throat he has a sandpaper throat a dry cracking tongue his body is dehydrated and this drink is a refreshing drink that the soldiers would have with them it was a vinegar wine it was a tangy wine that 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 woke you up that refreshed you. It was something like um, the vinegary zest of kombucha. Uh, be, be, have you ever, ever had that vinegary flavor and then suddenly like your senses come, come awake and you, you smell it? So it, it acts like a smelling salt. And so the soldiers would drink this to stay refreshed throughout the day. And so they give this to him. Maybe he'll call out, but this is not an act of compassion. This is an act of that base instinct of maybe something cool will happen. Maybe we get to watch a spectacle. Let's see. And not only that, most likely it will extend his suffering because it will shock him awake and he will then try to stay alive and stay in his suffering. So Jesus drinks the sour wine. He refused the numbing wine. He drinks the revitalizing wine. Wine. This makes the proclam- then he makes the proclamation that he's giving up his spirit and he does. His life is not taken. He's in control. He dies. And he's been faithful. He's been faithful to the end. He's been faithful to drink the cup of justice that, 
that was for us to drink down. He's been faithful unto death to his father, faithful to his people. And all of this to fulfill the scriptures. Psalm 22, verse 15. The very same psalm that talks about hands and feet being pierced and being mocked by those who are around the psalmist. The very same psalm says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Dry, crumbly, broken pot. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Psalm 69, verse 21 says, They gave me gall, poison for food. The word gall is literally poison. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. That's why John says, pay attention. Jesus is fulfilling scripture left and right. None of this is accidental. This is all intentional. So do you see then the reversal of Eden here in the sour wine? Do you see it? The fruit is consumed on the cross. The fruit of the vine is consumed on the cross. It's both denied, the, the one that would make him not be faithful to going the full way, but then it's also consumed, the one that will allow him to finish and to fulfill Scripture, to be faithful. This is a reversal of the eating of the fruit from the tree and garden where they didn't listen to the Father. They didn't trust, so they took what wasn't theirs. They were unfaithful with the fruit, and Jesus was faithful. They were unfaithful in the easiest, best, most flourishing of circumstances, and Jesus was faithful in the most pain-riddled, awful circumstances. You can imagine, he was faithful with the fruit on the cross. Incredible. His faithfulness with this fruit is a reversal of their unfaithfulness. Now, Jesus dies. And then enter into the scene, onto the stage, two secret apprentices of Jesus. Two covert disciples. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Here's how it reads. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier, by the way, had come to Jesus at night. Remember that? He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. There's so much here. (laughs) Oh, man. What do we do with these two? What do we know about these two? Well, let's start with Joseph of Arimathea. What we know from him from this gospel account and the other gospels is that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling body of the Jewish religious leaders, the same ones who schemed to put Jesus to death. We know he was called a righteous man, a a good man, one who sought the righteousness of 
God. We also know that he opposed the council's shady plans regarding Jesus and this murder plot. Here we're told he's a secret disciple of Jesus. Secret because he was fearing social pressure. Because he knew what it meant to trust in this Jesus. He knew he would be ostracized. We also find out he's rich, which we'll get to here a little bit later. So Nicodemus. Nicodemus now, he was a famed teacher. He was called the rabbi or the teacher of all of Israel by Jesus himself. He was well known for teaching the people the scriptures. And, and he, he slinks his way to Jesus under the cover of night one time to talk to this Jesus, to have a conversation with him. And he too is a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a member of the Pharisees. And we meet him again in John, in John 3. So, secret followers of Jesus, okay? Secret followers of Jesus who are brought into public support of Jesus because of the reality of the cross. Secret followers of Jesus are being brought into public support of Jesus because of what they've seen at the cross. The cross called them out of hiding. It called them out of the darkness into the dangerous and glorious light of saying, I'm with this guy, and I don't care what it costs me anymore, because it's far too costly not to be with him. Joseph of Arimathea, he stuck his neck out on two fronts. I mean, think about it. He goes to Pilate. Help me out. Is Pilate having a good day? Is Pilate in a really grumpy mood? Pilate was just played by a bunch, a bunch of people that he does not like. So, Joseph of Arimathea risks the wrath of a spurned, grumpy Roman politician who can say, you're dead. This is the risk of his very life to go and ask Pilate. But he also commits social circle suicide here. His inner circle, his crew, his best Friends, his mentors, his mentees, his, his community, they wanted Jesus dead. And this move to honor Jesus would mean social ostracizing, shaming. He was about to be canceled. Also, by the way, he's dealing with a dead body that renders him what? Unclean, which means he can now not participate in the Passover, which to us might sound like, oh, well, that's a bummer. No, that was a big, big deal for someone like this. Nicodemus, it's the same. His physical life and the life he knew was all put on the chopping block as he partnered with Joseph of Arimathea. Career, fame, accolades, influence, power, all at risk of being taken away. Joseph and Nicodemus stepped into the crosshairs of cancellation by political, religious, and peer powers. And just imagine, like, put yourself in the shoes of their friends or their families who are across the street wondering, what are you doing? You are men of great reputation. Why are you taking such care of a rejected criminal? A pariah, a despised enemy of the state. 
And then as they performed this foolish task, the question I'm sure hung in the air for them, and they probably caught each other's eyes a few different times going, what's next for us? It's easy for us. We know, like, okay, things, things are going to get better in a number of ways, but there's a huge question mark. Like, what's next for us? I don't know, Joe. We're doing the right thing, right, Nick? We're doing the right thing, right? Yeah. What was next for them? Well, we should also know this. It's no casual burial. We can easily go, well, well they're just, you know, they're, they're just kind of being human and doing something good and, and nice. Well, that's not what's ha- happening here. Uh, we, we easily miss the grandiose fact that is just put in here, right? Nicodemus, who had once come to Jesus inconspicuously under the cover of night, now tromps through Israel here conspicuously. He comes with 75 pounds of spices. 75 pounds of spices. This is a fragrance bomb. This would be smelled from football fields away. The air was alive. It was swirling. It was floral. It was pungent and sweet with spice. Imagine a large bale of hay on a farm. You've seen a bale of hay? Everyone in here seen a bale of hay? On average, between 70 and 75 pounds. That much spice is going with the corpse of Jesus. And by the way, it's a bit cumbersome to pull a body, even a dehydrated body, a man's body, off of a cross. This is cumbersome. This is, this is messy. This is difficult work. This is a spectacle to watch these guys do this and carry these spices. I'm sure they, they had some help. There's no hiding this. This is an olfactory neon sign. We are about to bury a king. They were burying Jesus as a king. They thought him to be the Messiah. They thought it was true what was done and said on Palm Sunday. The long-awaited hero, the Messiah, had come to his city. See, in the Old Testament, there was a king named Asa, and when he died, his burial was accompanied with tons of spice, loads of spice. When King Herod died, there were 500 servants in a caravan that went with his body. And each one of them was carrying a load of spice. He made sure this happened, by the way. He was a little bit arrogant. He wanted to make sure everyone saw the parade and smelled the parade because he didn't want anyone to to, um, not remember him, right? So that's, that's Herod. Now, when ancient kings died, the atmosphere was just a floral explosion because spices were pricey. Spices were pricey. The more spice the more the dead is honored as a great person. So Joe and Nick are honoring Jesus as a king. And there's something else. Man, this is, this is so good. There are so many buried hidden treasures in the scripture that are just waiting for us to excavate them. This is so good. There's something else here that John wants us to see to show us the reversal of Eden at play. So verses 41 and 42, check this out. 
Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. In other words, they didn't have a lot of time. But thankfully, there was a tomb nearby, a tomb that they had access to, because we find out something about that here shortly. But first, let let me say this. John wants us to know that where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. His crucifixion happened in a garden. Now think of John 18, 19, and 20. Betrayal and arrest are in a garden. The crucifixion and burial are in a In John chapter 20, the resurrection takes place in the garden. John is saying, as you think about what Jesus has done, it all needs to be framed in the space of a garden. It's important to him. He keeps repeating it over and over and over again. So there's a key detail here, too. Check this out. Jesus is buried in a nearby what kind of tomb? Yeah, it's a sepulcher, but it says it's a new tomb. It's a new tomb. That's a fun little detail. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that this unused tomb is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. To carve a brand new tomb out of rock like that is a very costly endeavor. But, but here's what we can't miss, and that I've, I've missed for all my life until recently. and just exploded off the page. There's a powerful moment of the garden in reverse here. Do you see it? Jesus is buried in a new tomb. Jesus is buried in a new tomb. The Son of God, who took on flesh, was put in a new tomb, a place where there had never been death. No body had been laid in that soil, in a garden. This is the reversal of Adam being made out of the dirt, out of a fresh new virgin world, called up out of the dirt where there was no death. He was called out of a new earth, a new land. An unused plot of land. And Jesus' body is laid into an unused new tomb. John is like, do you get it? He's like beating us over the head at this point. Do you get it? The curse. And all of its ravages that you know. All of those pains, bodily and emotionally, all of, all of the trauma and all of the despair, all of the bloodshed and all of the injustice that you see as you scroll or that you've seen with your own eyes, do you get it? He's reversing it. He's regardening the world. He's making it all right. It's going to be all right. Jesus is putting to death the old man, the sinful ways of Adam. He's putting that body into the ground. He's burying our old nature to reverse the curse so we can rise with new life. 
John, from 18 and on into 20, takes us on this rewinding tour. So we see Genesis 4 replayed backwards. It's kind of like that, that old joke. You know what happens when you play a country song backwards? You know what? Like, you get your truck back, you get your wife back, you get your dog back, you get it all back, right? That's what happens when you play it backwards. It's kind of what's happening here. But way more cosmic and bigger than that. God is at work overcoming the old, broken, groaning creation. He's recreating this new world in a garden with Jesus as our pioneer, with Jesus as our head, with Jesus as the new human, with Jesus as the one who is truly human, the one in whose image we are made. And because we are in his image, we are to love our brothers and sisters rather than to be jealous and kill them like Cain killed Abel. What a glorious story. All the plot elements coming together to point towards this premeditated design of God to reverse the curse in this world. This is the true story. This is the true story. God regarding the world through Jesus. God giving this redemptive, hope-filled, joy-bringing narrative to a bunch of people who put him on the cross. And this narrative out-narrates all the stories that this world can make up to give you some kind of hope or joy. All other stories that this world tells are out-narrated by this gospel tale. In Jesus, the great ultimate cosmic, at that great ultimate cosmic level, God has reversed the disastrous fall of Genesis. And in our own lives, personally, he is doing that. And if we, like Joseph and Nicodemus honor this Jesus as king. He reverses the curse in our lives. He will one day fully do that. We're going to suffer. We're going to feel all sorts of travails and pains in this world. But one day, all those tears will be wiped away if he is our king and if he is honored as such. See, when we see the cross of Jesus, when we see the cross as the cross really is, the king who died in our place, the king who went into our tomb, like, think about that. Joseph buried Jesus in his tomb. Jesus took Joseph's place in his tomb at the literal <laughs> and the metaphysical level. But when we see the cross, when we see the gospel this way, it puts a boldness into a once secret apprentice. It, it puts courage into the once covert disciple. When the glory of the cross overcomes the fear of man, history is changed. Our lives are changed. Jesus is honored and, and people, you, I, we enter into our destiny as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. How often... Has the church bowed in faint heartedness, capitulating to popular opinion, rather than being emboldened by the glory of the cross to stand and say and do what is right because we've been afraid of losing numbers? Well, what'll happen to budget if we. You can't say that from the pulpit because that, that rubs people wrong. Do you know that every, if you look at all the mainline traditions, wherever, wherever the gospel is compromised, wherever the scriptures are sidelined, and wherever there, there's this liberal move theologically from the scriptures in the mainline traditions, those traditions are dying up and drying because there is no life there. 
And people are hanging on and clinging on to their traditions and, and trying to jettison the scriptures because they, they want the attentions of people and they want the power associated with it, but they're denying the power of life. This is, it's happening everywhere. Because there's fear. Joseph and Nicodemus. What a beautiful way of honoring their king. Know that quiet, courageous acts of faithfulness resound throughout the world. Joe and Nick, they had no clue we'd be reading about them. But they changed history and they fulfilled prophecy because the Spirit led. So here's the deal. Um, I need to close. <laughs> uh, take this sermon as a loving call for Christ's honor and courage. Take this sermon as a loving call for Christ's honor and courage. Let the glorious story of the garden's reversal just wash over you and fill you with hope and, and fill you with wonder that God has won and he's winning. And it might cost us a lot to, to be with this guy over here, but it costs us a lot more not to be with him. And saying that, here's, here's how I want to close. I want to, uh, I want to tell you a story of, of um, a, one of my favorite stories. I was reminded of this yesterday at Narnia, at Inklings, and there's this moment, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Anyone read Dawn Treader? There's this moment in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's part of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where Lucy and the others, they're on the ship, and they're heading into the dark unknown waters and it's stormy and it's scary and fear is is rising in, in the crew of adventurers hearts are failing and they're worried that that aslan has led them astray and in the midst of the trouble lucy whispers aslan aslan if ever you loved us at all send us help now tell me you've never prayed a prayer like that to god if you've ever loved me, help me now. After she whispers this, Lewis goes on to write, the darkness did not grow any less, but she began to feel a little, a very little, better. <laughs> He's such a Brit. After all, nothing has really happened to us yet, she thought. But then something begins to happen, and let me read this to you. He writes these words. There was a tiny speck of light ahead, and while they watched, a broad beam of light fell from it upon the ship. It did not alter the surrounding darkness, but the whole ship was lit up as if by searchlight. And Prince Caspian blinked. He stared around, saw the faces of his companions, all with wild, fixed expressions. Everyone was staring in the same direction. Behind everyone lay his black, sharply-edged shadow. Lucy looked along the beam and presently saw something in it. At first, it looked like a cross. Then it looked like an airplane. And then it looked like a kite. And at last, with a whirring of wings, it was right overhead, and it was an albatross. It circled three times around the mast and then perched for an instant on the crest of the, of the gilded dragon at the prow. It called out in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be words, though no one understood them. After that, it spread its wings, rose, and began to fly slowly ahead, bearing a little to starboard. Drinian steered after it, not doubting that it offered good guidance. But no one except Lucy knew that as it circled the mast, it had whispered to her. Lucy hears a whisper. Three words. 
just three words, she hears a whisper, and I want to gift these words to you today. I want to gift these words to you in light of the garden's reversal. Lucy hears these words. Courage, dear heart. Courage, dear heart. And she knew it was Adeline whispering to her. And then Lewis goes on with these shining words. He says, in a few moments, the darkness turned into a grayness ahead. And then, almost before they dared to begin hoping, they had shot out into the sunlight and were in the warm blue world again. And all at once, everybody realized that there was nothing to be afraid of and never had been. They blinked their eyes and looked about them. The brightness of the ship herself astonished them. They had half expected to find that the darkness would cling to the white and the green and the gold in the form of some grime or scum. And then first, and one and then another, they began laughing. They began laughing. Courage, dear hearts. For the king of glory has reversed the curse. He's climbed your cross. He was buried in your tomb. And he rose again. Courage, dear hearts. Whatever pressures press on you to remain a hidden worshiper of Jesus, courage, dear hearts. Whenever anxiety rises at the thought of losing popular opinion or upward mobility or influence, courage, dear hearts. And whatever fear resides in your body for making that confession that you need to make, courage, dear hearts. Whatever fear resides in your body, keeping you from honoring King Jesus with all the spices of your life, courage, dear hearts. For the King of glory has reversed the curse. He has climbed your cross, was buried in your tomb, and he has rose again. So may your life carry the sweetness of his fragrance. Heavenly Father, may it be so. May our lives carry the sweetness of your fragrance, the fragrance of a king buried on our behalf that we might rise to kingdom life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.